listening to History Man 1781, a project of ekbarns.com, where we walk in the footsteps of heroes and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's podcast, it's actually the second podcast with Kim Stacy, and we're talking about the everyday British soldier. Kim spent a good deal of time with us in the last podcast, and we're excited about listening to what he has to say about the British soldier and, and, and how they went about their everyday lives here in America. Thank you very much. I appreciate being back, Eric. Specifically um, on this podcast, I want to talk about the British soldier, who he was, and how he lived. And it's going to be basically from uh, cradle to grave. And before I've given you uh, listeners some background, uh, generally what was going on during the American Revolution. But more specifically, let's talk about uh, the grunt, the, the everyday foot soldier, the infantryman. And mostly the English soldiers were recruited in England or Scotland or Ireland. They would send around a recruiting party, a recruiting sergeant, and he had gold on him and coins and usually a big bag of shillings. So what they would do is they would go from little town to little town and find the unemployed people in jail. They didn't really care. Farm boys who got tired of looking at the south end of a northbound horse. Weavers that were put out of uh, business because it was a cottage industry by mechanization. And poverty, local famines. So the idea was being a soldier was really looked down upon by English society as a whole. So basically, a lot of people consider that was like a last chance. It, it wasn't. You had adventurers and volunteers. And one of the fun tricks they did, if you weren't sure, they'd take you in the pub and get you loaded. I mean, drunk where you're cross-eyed. And they would put the shilling into a mug of, of either beer or rum, sometimes gin, and you'd drink that down and take that coin out. Once you had that coin in your hand, legally, you had attested which means promised to join the army. The contract was sealed. It was. And then later you saw a doctor who uh, looked at you. could either be a, a doctor who was referred to as doctor or a surgeon who was referred to as mister. Even to this very day, it's the same. And uh, he was paid off by the sergeant. So if you had a big old hernia, you know, he might say, no, no. And then they take the money back from him. And if you had two opposable teeth to bite the cartridge for your musket, they would take you. If you weren't hacking up blood from tuberculosis, they would take you. Basically, if you were breathing, you were in the army. And then you would march around from town to town until they got you to a regimental depot uh, where you were issued your uniforms. Now, depending on what type of soldier you were going to be, varied the uniforms. Jim had talked about the artillery who were dressed in blue. Uh, that was a very specialized soldier. A lot of mathematics involved, and they were crack troops, and they were paid extra because it was damn dangerous firing those cannons because they had a tendency to blow up. So they got paid extra. If you were going to be a Highland soldier, and one of the interesting things about the 84th Regiment of Foot, Royal Highland Immigrants, formed mainly in Canada, they were also being formed and ended up at Morse Creek Bridge. And most of them didn't make it back to the regiment. Being a Highland regiment, they were issued hose, stockings that came up to their knee, kilts, 
or plates, depending if the, the words were somewhat interchangeable, but not really, it's, it's an evolutionary thing. A white linen shirt, usually two, a white linen waistcoat, and a very thick wool that was lined uh, red coat, and it was cut short because of the kilt. Now, if you were in a bonnet, of course you have to have a bonnet if you're a Highlander. If you're going to be in a line regiment, just general infantry, you were issued uh, a tricorn hat, the shirts, shoes, socks, breeches, which came down to just below the knee and then were cinched up. And the weapons were exactly the same, except for maybe the swords would be different. Now, the, uh, the musket is 75 caliber. It's a little over four foot tall with an 18-inch triangular bladed bayonet. The average soldier's load of ammunition on campaign was uh, 32 rounds, and that varied occasionally, depending on the mission. Your field equipment was issued by the Board of Ordnance, and you were put into what's called a mess. That's five men that sleep in one tent, because one guy is always on guard duty. Also, that mess would cook together. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. And that was your unit. That was your squad. Those were your mates. You ate off the same spoon. No point in getting two spoons dirty. And it's the same thing today, by the way. It's, that hasn't changed any. We just don't call it a mess anymore. So he's in his barracks, and he's being trained as a robot, an autonomy. Um, We'll just call it a robot right now because I'm having trouble saying the other word. Where he would drill constantly, four to six hours a day, how to march, how to move on the battlefield, and how to fire his weapon. One of the great myths is in the manuals it says when you're going to fire, you get a command, make ready, and you cock the weapon to get it ready to fire, present that's the magic word there, and then fire. I've had many arguments with uh, PhDs that because of that word present, ergo, they did not aim their weapons. The other opposite of that is you can't read a regimental journal without notations that the men are to fire at marks. Sometimes floating barrels if you're by open water, so you're practicing shooting at moving targets. So you have to aim as where the American version of that is make ready, aim, and then fire. Uh, that's one of the beautiful myths of America. And uh, hopefully I'm changing that myth uh, one person at a time. So he has a weapon which he has to care for. And that's not his only part of the day. The drum and fife are his clock. Watches were expensive. Only officers could afford watches. So they would beat the drums for him to wake up in the morning. They would beat the drums for him to go to the bathroom in the morning. They would beat the drum for him to draw water, beat the drum to go get firewood, beat the drum when it's time for a meal, beat the drum when it's time to fall in for parade, beat the drum um, if there's an impending attack. So he lived his entire life by a series of drum beats that were memorized and even in his sleep he could be dead nuts drunk, and those drums go off. He's still going to hear it and know exactly what to do. So he gets, uh, he's paid when he uh, enlists and for the rest of his enlistment, 
Enlistments were normally for what we would call life. So he's in it. Which would be a lot different than the the American forces where you had some enlistments, especially with the militia, only three months sometimes. Yeah, some even as short as 30 days. Right. Just for a, for a particular engagement that was upcoming then, or whatever, and then you go back home. So a lot different in that regard. Yeah, they were. And uh, they were also paid in coin is where the Americans were paid in paper, right. a promissory note, which has no worth. And uh, the soldiers paid eight pence a day, which really wasn't bad considering a civilian was making a little bit more than that. Not a lot more, you know, a regular labor, farm labor. So it wasn't really bad pay. But out of that, it was called stoppages. So out of the eight pence, eight pennies, he normally took home four pennies a day when he was paid. And it wasn't always on time, but usually he was on time. Once a month he was paid. And that was for uh, the Chelsea Hospital Pension System. When he gets old, if he survives disease or is uh, incapacitated, he could go to Chelsea Hospital, which is in Kew outside of London, England, or some of the satellite places like in Edinburgh. They had like an office, like a VA has offices, probably one here in Camden. And then the major one would be Columbia. And he had to pay for his food that was issued to him. So he was paid for uh, medical services, whether he needed it or not. And then there was a deduction for the good of the company. If somebody was injured or hurt and you know they needed a little bit of cash to get them through, depending on the regiment, they would have a regimental fund for emergencies. For uh, medical services that he's paid for. Medicine in the 18th century was abysmal by today's standards. If you took a, a first aid course, you know more about treating injuries and illness and the, uh, the knowledge of bacteria and how infections work than a surgeon of the day. Surgeons started off usually as an apprentice, helping to cut off limbs, which was uh, the main way to treat uh, compound fractures. And some of them were actually very talented at it because they've done so many of them. The fastest amputation of a leg was 15 seconds and the apprentice lost four fingers. <laughs> so they were in a big hurry. Um, that's another lecture for another day. So he paid for that. If he had uh, a venereal disease, gonorrhea, syphilis, they thought were all the same. He was charged when he was sick off of his pay because he couldn't do guard duty because of the uh, uncomfortableness of his affliction. And there's many, many orders about them and not to lay with women, not their wives, in the wet grass. They thought the wet grass and a hooker was a way of getting a venereal disease. They would treat it with mercury. You overdose with mercury and your teeth fall out and it doesn't cure it. It's just time, you know, it goes away a little bit. And if you had a temperature, they would just put their hand on your forehead. They had no way of treating malaria, no quinine at that time. And dysentery. They didn't know that if you eat raw sugar for dysentery um, with our military rations, if you don't have the proper medication, you can take the peanut butter, drain off the oil, eat the, the cake of peanut butter, with all the raw sugar you can get to slow down your intestines. 
Dysentery killed far more people than bullets did in the American Revolution in sickness. Malaria, especially here in the South, in the Low Country, malaria was very bad. Lots of diseases. Normally, colonial wars, right through the uh, War of Northern Aggression, disease killed uh, 9 out of 10 of people. And that 1%, 1 to 2% were actually killed in combat-related activities. But uh, yeah, the diarrhea... The British, interesting part, part of his training was camp hygiene and personal hygiene. They were issued soap, which was a revelation from the French and Indian War. They found that the Native Americans bathed every day, and they didn't come down with all these rashes and, and diseases, and uh, they learned to boil their water. So our soldiers here, especially in the South, in camp they had big slit latrines, and if you're uh, of the World War One or Two generation, and even right over into the Middle East, there were slit latrines. You dug a big trench, and every day you filled uh, six inches of dirt on top of it to keep the flies away, and you went about your business. Now, if you have dysentery, you, you go 100 feet, you drop your trousers, and you go, then you get back in line. Some soldiers would literally cut the seam out of their trousers. So they didn't, taking a trouser off was time consuming with the amount of time it takes for your body to say, we've got an exit coming <laughs> and getting them down and not messing up, soiling your, your own trousers. So if you went anywhere else, including urinating, you did not just stand outside your tent and urinate in the company street. If you were caught, you were flogged. Now, flogging, there's a lot of myth about that. Yes, you could get 500 lashes. That was so incredibly rare because it would kill you. And usually they would do that over a series of days. Normally, minor infractions, you might get 10 lashes. For a serious, serious crime, rape or murder, they might very well give you 500 and then hang you. But that had to be approved by the commanding general. And here it would have been Cornwallis. And he would say yes or no. A lot of times... If it wasn't so obvious that it was murder or rape, they would lessen the charge and sometimes ship you off to the fever islands where you were going to die or to Africa because you, you were going to die of disease. It was an absolute known fact. You went to these places, you were going to die of disease. The one out of 10 guy that didn't was very lucky because now he could start his own business because he's lived through the disease, the, the, the seasoning as they called it. And most of the third world, there's still a lot of diseases you do not want to get, but we have vaccines for a lot of them. So he's got his uh, medical. Um, the food comes over in barrels, and it was usually rotten or spoiled. If you were in garrison any length of time, they supplied you, free of cost, seeds to plant. Cabbage was very popular. Corn or maize was popular. Rutabagas, because potatoes really hadn't taken off yet. Rutabagas are sort of like potatoes, and actually they're very good. They're, they're hard, you'd bake it into a pie. If you were in one place any length of time, you built field kitchens with a bakery, with a, a wood oven made out of uh, clay. And that was very common. If you're going to be in camp for more than a few days, like hiding out at one of the plantation here, um, out of range of the American snipers, they would build ovens and have fresh bread. And uh, the peas, 
were uh, split peas, mainly because you can pack them quite heavily into a barrel. And they would take their uh, nasty salted pork or beef and they would share it. This mess eats out of one, usually cast iron or later tin bucket, basically. So they would share all their food. If a couple extra pennies they had, they would buy fresh produce if, if it was available. And they would wash the salted meat to get a lot of the salt out of it, chop it up fine, put it in the stew with the peas, and the pea stew was known as the green death. Um, I've not replicated that. I have loved my split peas, and I've eaten salt pork, but I've never had the courage to put all that together. <laughs> so, then the, the food, they were always foraging. Tons and tons of orders against foraging, especially here in the South Cornwall. It's specifically prohibited uh, stealing chickens, stealing pigs, using uh, the wooden fencing on a farm for firewood. They would steal that for firewood. Soldiers scrounge. I know I did. Let me ask you this. So they're, they're, they're split up in companies or messes, right, where they slept five to a tent, one on guard is what you said. How many cooks are in this whole, you know, how many cooks were here at Camden? Was there one cook per, per 20 messes or how, how Well, did that each work? mess was responsible for its own meal. There would have been a bakery here. Um, because there was a logistics center, a lot of flour, and the hospital. And in the hospital, you got... Uh, so it wasn't like you had a regiment of cooks? No, no, no each, there was no each... catering corps or cooks. Right. Okay, okay. Um, the early days for my military career, you had uh, military cooks. And now they're all civilians with uh, usually a, a sergeant who's trained as a chef. Uh, the food today is actually quite good for the most part compared to when I started out. And we had a saying, it was just like mother used to make, only she didn't poop in it. <laughs> and I think that probably started, you know, somewhere around the First World War when you had professional kitchens right. putting out the food. So they would scrounge. Um, quite often, farmers would sell to both sides. If I was a farmer here outside of Camden, uh, I got a lot of cattle. Americans are going to come take my cattle, and they're going to give me a piece of paper, a promissory note. Well, I can't take that to Charleston and buy anything with it because I don't have coin species. So the soldiers would go to the farmers, or the farmers actually would come to the camp. And normally outside of camp, like Camden here, there would have been a bunch of merchants that follow the army. And they go to the bigger encampments, and they sell luxury goods. So the farmer brings his wagon here to Camden. If the commissary officer doesn't buy at all, first thing you would do is try to catch him outside the fort before the commissary takes all the good stuff, and you would pay him in pennies and coin. And now you had fresh carrots that went into your green death stew. When fruit was in season, uh, fruit and dysentery don't go well together. It, it just makes it worse. But when the peaches, uh, there was a lot of peaches in this area at one time. When it was in season, it was good. And they were smart enough not to eat the green fruit, like green apples, green pears, and uh, because it basically gave you uh, the squirts. So here in town, it was probably not bad, unless you were sick in hospital. The active duty troops would be out on scouting parties, uh, looking for Marion, or escort duty 
from the next wagon train going to the next outpost and then to the next outpost. And they would probably pass each other on because the 84th did a lot of that. Uh, Fairlawn, they protected uh, the ferry there, a hospital logistics center, but they also went from there up to uh, Colton House. They went up to um, Monks, uh, all over the place, but they would go to way station, way station, and then the next morning the soldiers stationed there would take the wagon train to the next one and they would all come home back to their, their home base. So here he is, you know, he's a lifer. Age-wise, as young as 14 if you were tall, uh, if you were an officer, bought your commission at 14. That was not uncommon at all. Some at 12. Not many, but some. The average soldier was probably in his uh, 18, 19, 20-year-old range, or much later. Uh, the 64th was a very old regiment, been in America for a long time, and the average age there was 35 years old. And that wasn't a common for your regiments because you were in for life. Now, back to the, the mess, you had asked about, you've got five men to a mess, approximately, trying to do the math in my head real quick, in a company, a company would be, depending on the year, 50 or 75 men. So you break that down by fives. Each company had uh, usually three to four platoons, again, depending on how many healthy soldiers that they had. When you read the hospital returns, how many were in Charleston, the 71st Highlanders, incredible soldiers, at any given time, 25% were in hospital with oh. disease. Because they had diseases they'd never seen up in the hills of Scotland. Uh, the 84th, on the other hand, raised in uh, upstate New York, uh, what is Canada now, some here down uh, in North Carolina. One quarter were Scots, but they kept the Scottish uniform the entire time. They threatened to mutiny if they took it away from them, which was a very serious uh, charge to, to offer if you did that. A uh, quarter were Irish, um, one quarter were known as foreigners, which was French Canadians, and one quarter Americans. Started off supposed to be a regular regiment, but in fact uh, it was a loyalist for a while and then went on the real army. And for example, think in terms of a National Guard unit getting activated, and then they're never back to being National Guard. It becomes a regular army unit. It's so when they, be, they, they joined as loyalists, uh, would, they, would they be considered provincials at that point? Is that, yes. So a loyalist, would, would that would be the provincial section, and then you're saying they, they, they became full-blown, or how would you say Regular that? army. Regular army. Yeah, they, they were drafted into the regular army, which gave them uh, pension rights. I see. But so the, the difference was it was only for the duration, not for life. The provincials were only for duration? Yes. Okay. And they only were supposed to serve in North America. Now there are exceptions to everything I will ever tell you. There's always an exception to it. New Jersey. So New when New they Jersey became volunteers. the 84th Regiment, full-blown army. Right. They, they were full-blown army for life. No. Because they were raised as provincials, their enlistment contract stated that they would be given land grants at the end of hostilities. 
And they were only in for the duration, not life like a regular army unit coming over from England. Their, their pay, there were slight differences in pay. So in, they started off in uh, actually recruiting in 74. Weren't uniformed until 76 when the uniforms first came over. And then they were promised by the king to be as regulars when they formed. But part of the condition was they would only serve in North America for the duration as a regular British regiment. That, that was a, a brand new concession for the American War. And they found the need to do that from the earlier French and Indian War. Because that was the, the, the testing field for the officers. A lot of the officers, American and British officers, uh, fought in it, senior officers. And a lot of the American officers in rebellion had been British officers. So nobody really wanted this war to start. Nobody. And the British never had their heart into it, the soldiers that were here. Because you're fighting against your friends and relatives in some cases. So there's, there's some quirky things. Um, well, you had units like the New Jersey Volunteers, which were down here. And they were formed as provincials, stayed as provincials for the entire war. So there were exceptions. So the, the company, you had 10 companies per regiment. Regiment was an administrative headquarters sort of thing. And battalion, a regiment could have more than one battalion. The battalion was a lower level of administration. But in reality, for units like the 84th, operated like special forces do today. Of the, uh, the 20 companies, they were scattered from Mackinac in northern Michigan to Newfoundland, the end of North America. I mean, the only reason you go there is because you have to. And all the way down to Florida, to St. Augustine. And they almost always fought in company levels. Now here at Utah Spring, there were four companies, but they were all under strength. All, all your British were under strength. So the soldier, if he's wounded, invalided, and he has rights to go to the hospital in England and Scotland, to, to Chelsea. And uh, my favorite phrase is worn out in the service. A lot of times say hernia, gunshot wound, missing limbs, blind in both eyes. And he could receive a, a pension. That was part of the Crown's promise. If something happened to him, they would take care of him at the end of the war or his service life. And the fascination for me is the logistics warfare, but how it affected the grunt, the, the common foot soldier, and what he did. And, and normally, when he was on campaign, he wore 75 pounds of equipment or more. His basic load was 75 pounds with his knapsack, haversack, with food, ammunition. They always tried to have extra ammunition. Of course, every soldier steals extra ammunition. I mean, that, that, that's a given. You, you never have enough ammunition. And they didn't lose very many battles, but yet higher-ups in, in Parliament didn't have the heart into it. There was a world war going on. And the poor foot soldier, once again, uh, he's left out in the cold when it's all said and done. They evacuate loyalist units like the 84th companies here went up to Canada for land grants to Nova Scotia or Ontario, depending where you were. Uh, all the provincials, a lot of provincials from this area specifically went uh, to the islands and to the Bahamas because it was very rich there. They had trade interests there. Um, some went to Florida. And then of course the British crown sticks it to them by giving it back to Spain. 
And so now they have to go back to the Bahamas. But the average foot soldier, he goes home. He's probably old. He's probably going to beg. If he didn't have a specific trade, a lot of them became blacksmiths in the army, uh, leather workers in the army, uh, would have a trade, even though they were older when they got back to England, they could do that. But a lot of them were stuck either living in the hospital on a few pennies a day that they were given. That, that was basically the life form. And the, the British soldier was still degraded in society right through the Victorian era until the Crimea War, just before the American Civil War. And it wasn't until the First World War that the British Tommy, and Tommy was actually used here in some documents. But normally when you hear the British Tommy, that's World War I, World War II. And it's the same. If you're a mud soldier, a rifleman, you know, a, a foot slogger, a grunt, it really hasn't changed much. You know, you still never get fed enough. You still never have enough ammunition. They're always telling you to do stupid things because you have stupid officers who really are too stupid to listen to their sergeants go, uh, this doesn't look right. I've been ambushed a few times before and you know, it smells wrong. Well, we're gonna go through there anyway. Okay, you're the officer in charge. <laughs> and that's what I love about it. You know, I, I love bringing that part of the story to make the story whole about our independence. Because just studying the American side alone is a misservice to the Republic. Well, on behalf of History Man 1781, a project of ekbarns.com, I'd like to thank you for spending time with us about the everyday soldier, especially the British side. Adds new uh, luster and a new tapestry to a, to a story in the South that is rarely to told and uh, that very few know about. And hopefully we can in enlarging that market or enlarging that uh, group of people who know about it. So thank you very much. Um, let me ask you this as we as we close up. What is your idea of liberty, of freedom? For me, uh, as, as much as I'm a, a big fan of, of the English, the, the British, when I was very young, and I mentioned a little bit about my father uh, earlier, it was explained to me what our rights are, the Bill of Rights. He had his first hunting rifle, a little 22 bolt action, uh, when he was like 12 in Minnesota. And everybody carried guns to school. And my younger brother and I used to fist fight on a drop of a hat. I mean, serious, beat each other hard. And my father explained to me, my rights stop where the other person's nose begins. And having been, in, I don't want to use the word indoctrinated, but for me that was a born-again moment when I sat down and read it and realized that our founding fathers were the most brilliant men of their days. Lawyers mostly, they put a comma someplace because that's where the comma belonged. And over the years as I've read it, reread it, and taught it many, many times, our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, and our Bill of Rights are religious documents ordained by God, written by man, and uh, that we the people, I've got the bumper sticker, and I love sharing that information, especially with foreigners, and I live it. You take one right away, and it was written down because most people were illiterate. It was like carving a stone monument in ancient Egypt or ancient Greece. 
Um, we wrote it down so everybody can learn to read the Bible. That's how most people learn to read. And then our, our founding documents. But to me, they're sacred. And it really irritates me to no end when I hear uh, politicians claim, well, we don't need this, we don't need that, we don't need the Second Amendment. And these people are lawyers. And it's like, you have to have read these documents. You took an oath to protect them. And as a politician, your political oath specifically states, you will honor and protect the Constitution of the United States and the state of South Carolina, South Carolina Constitution, which I had to do when I joined the South Carolina National Guard. And to me, those are sacred vows. And foreigners, I love that. I still carry around uh, the pocket, Boy Scouts of America pocketbook of the Constitution and Bill of Rights and pass those out for uh, new people that, that I'm honored to have decided to come to the States legally. But yeah, for me, it's, it's a sacred trust. You know, it's, I'll fight for it. Uh, your tax dollars trained me. And I'm quite willing, you know, to man the barricades like so many others before me have done for their rights. And that's pretty much where I get into it. For me, it's biblical. Well, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome.